Chaos is not randomness. Chaos is just the pattern you can't see. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to designer, author, and entrepreneur, Joey Caffone. You're probably most familiar with Joey as the founder and CEO of Baron Fig, a company he founded almost 10 years ago with a design for a perfect notebook and a massively successful Kickstarter campaign. Now, Baron Fig has evolved into a successful purveyor of tools for thinkers, including notebooks, pens, workspace organizers, bags, and books. As a multidisciplinary designer, Joey's designed and art directed over a hundred products from zero to launch, including books, posters, packaging, websites, apps, and physical goods. His work has been featured in Fast Company, Bloomberg, New York Magazine, Newsweek, Bon Appetit, Quartz, Mashable, Print, and more. And on top of all that, Joey's just written and published a book, The Laws of Creativity. Unlock your originality and awaken your creative genius. The book is a revealing and practical exploration of creativity, what it is, how it works, and how you can harness it in your everyday life. As you'll hear in our talk, Joey is deeply thoughtful, powerfully perceptive, and adept at both recognizing value and taking risks. Here's Joey. My name is Joey Caffone. I live in New York City, and I'm an entrepreneur and a newly minted author. I founded Baron Fig, a company that makes tools to help you do your best thinking. And I wrote The Laws of Creativity, a book that teaches you how to master your ideas. I'm a designer under the hood. I've designed and art directed over a hundred products from zero to launch. And in a nutshell, my work focuses on helping people turn their ideas into reality. Damn. That's pretty important work. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com In order to figure out how you got good at all of that, I like to unpack the whole package. We're going to go under the hood, as you say. Can you take me back to the beginning? I was uh, born in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, a lot of people know it because of the airport. I was actually born to two people who were deemed unfit to take care of another human by the state of New Jersey. Oh, yeah, so right. we're, we're good. We're going right from the beginning. So I was put into foster care, and then I got adopted when I was around one by a single woman who was actually, instead of a, a mom age, was somewhere closer to a grandma age. So she was a little bit older than everyone else, you know, all my friends' moms, and I called her mom, and she raised me, and we had a great time because she... 
single woman, I think. Uh, she had so much strength and she taught me so much about everything. And I think she tried to play the role that two parents play uh, all in one. She gave me a good footing. It was great right up until fifth grade. I came home one day and her, her friend was in the car, uh, Jean, and that was odd right off the bat. No one had ever come to pick me up. And my mom was crying. She said she had cancer, you know, like, and uh, I'm not uh, maybe 11 and I don't really understand that. The next few years were pretty tough. I started to have to do more and more around the house and she passed away when I was 13 in seventh grade. And that was tough. Uh, you know, I didn't have another parent to lean on. I didn't have anywhere to go. And I ended up going with her ex-husband and I lived with him and I called him grandpa. So that's where the age and title are righted again, I suppose. I mean, there are so many probably questions of identity and heredity that come from not knowing your biological parents, but then the orphan feeling of losing your adoptive parent at such a young age. I mean, how did you not feel completely alone in the world? I did feel alone, and I felt alone what would turn out to be the next you know, 10, 15 years. And the best way I could describe it to someone who's never been in that place is there are maybe a handful that treat you like number one in their life, right? Your your parents, uh, maybe a sibling or, um, you know, eventually perhaps a significant other. And so what happens is in most people's lives, they go from their parents treating them that way. They get into a relationship and then parents, unfortunately, eventually pass away. And so you can go your whole life without not having that. And I did not have that. And even though I was surrounded by people and I would express this and, you know, aunts and uncles would say, you know, we love you. It's present in small ways. It gave me an incredible gift, I think, which is to be my own cheerleader, to be my own source of strength. There's no safety net. And that has just delivered quite significantly. Following up on the identity question, do you know much about your bio parents? And did you have issues with that? So I did eventually come to understand who they were. I found out I was half Italian pretty early, uh, and my family's Italian and everything, so it was an easy fit. But I didn't know the other half until last year. Oh. Brand new news to me. We're, I'm hanging out with a bunch of buddies, and we're sitting around the table. We meet once a year, you know, college friends, and one of them had done the DNA test to figure it out. You know, he was like, you guys should all do this. And they were all doing it, and very comfortable with these guys, and I aired my concern. Is it my identity going to be shaken by learning that my background is something of a surprise? They encouraged me and they talked with me and they're like, you know, we're in it together. Let's do it. You know, if you're comfortable, we're, we're here to support you. And I did. And I found out the other half. So actually the other half is the majority Italian and then Greek, Egyptian, African. Oh, that's a nice cocktail though. Yeah. Random. I think all those flavors mix together nicely. I was almost disappointed that it wasn't more dramatic because it ended up being like 88%, I think, Italian. And then the other 12% was all these things sprinkled through. And I kind of hyped myself up for like, all right, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. And then I was like, well, you are Italian. <laughs> Mostly. <laughs> this is the part where I normally ask about your teenage years and how you found your 
itself and navigated the awkwardness and also maybe if you were rebellious and your teenage years were marked with a traumatic kind of shift in your in your family structure but that doesn't stop life from happening so how did you navigate all of this grief plus growing into an adult human that's like unformed and needs to rebel against the status quo and make out with people and (laughs) (laughs) yeah well there was a lot of that i didn't lose out i was a troublemaker before anything bad had happened i just was mostly through talking uh in class and detentions and i was always on the wrong side of of those things in school and another gift is that i learned pretty quickly that getting in trouble is not really a big deal I get in trouble all the time, and still, (laughs) there's always someone who's going to say something. It doesn't matter most of the time if you get a detention. So anyway, I entered my teenage years with a little bit more wisdom than than most, perhaps. I got in a lot of trouble, and I had already figured out that optimism was the key to general survival, and leveraged it heavily. And there were tough times. You know, I have a genetic disease or disorder sounds so serious. It's it's something that basically makes all the tissues in my body weaker, so they didn't let me do gym class. And so I was in an all-boy school, and I, it was tortured. They made me sit in the gymnasium and watch everyone play. So then I would just, you know, when the, the teacher wasn't looking, I'd get up and I'd play basketball because I'm 6'3", and you know, I love basketball. Honestly, my high school years were more normal than I think one would expect. I, I put myself back on a path, and I had incredible people around me to to support me. So I had a lot of fun, and I learned a lot, made trouble. Do you think the underlying nature of troublemaking, in your case, was about being opinionated and seeing the systems of the world and needing to voice yourself, or just needing to call attention to yourself in order to get, I don't know, whatever the resources or care that you needed. Right. It wasn't an attention-seeking thing. Being tall, I always got attention from everyone anyway. You know, I was like, I was six foot two when I was entering high school. I was you know, big, big kid. There was no way not to get all the attention, almost always. So that, I was satiated for sure in that regard. I think I just, pretty early on, had opinions, and for some reason, maybe my mom, she was, she was a very strong woman, quite like outspoken. I guess I learned from her, if you have a thought and it doesn't hurt anyone, speak up. I did all the time in, in class. Man, there was one time this teacher, he was shorter than me, and I think this was the reason. And I'm <laughs> sitting there doing like absolutely, you know, nothing wrong. Just sitting there leaning on my desk. And... He goes, all right, who wants to tell us about last night's reading? He goes, Cafone, I'd ask you, but you didn't read it. I was the tallest kid in the class, and he was, you know, a a former soccer player. I know. And so (laughs) I think this was a a, a tiny formative moment. And I I looked at the teacher, and I said, actually, I did read it. I don't appreciate what you just said. It's not true. And I I don't think you should make that assumption. Uh, I'm happy to tell you about what I read. And he kicked me out of class. Oh my god! I, this yeah. oh, yeah, but it was fine. I mean, I wasn't upset. I laughed. I was like, "That's great." Now I don't have to. And I just wandered the halls and chilled until the next class. 
I feel like I've heard a lot of stories of kind of authority getting misplaced in, in situations where it probably would have really behooved the teacher to say, oh, please continue. I'm so sorry I made that assumption about yeah. you. The teacher would have looked a lot better in the eyes of the other students. But weirdly, he bestowed a lot of cred- credibility on you by kicking you out of class and also belied his own insecurities. So I guess teachers are human too, but man, assumptions are a killer. Well, I like that you're opinionated. It seems that it's stayed with you. And I am not surprised that a single woman who adopted a child on her own is a strong and opinionated woman too. So go mom. You mentioned that you learned how to leverage optimism as a survival skill early on. Can you get a little granular with that? Like, how did you actually leverage optimism? Optimism in general is a tool. It's like one tool. There's gratitude for the past and perspective for the present and optimism for the future. You can't predict the future of course, but that doesn't mean you're helpless because you can envision it. And if you imagine the positive potentialities, you you feel better, number one, and you tend to almost accidentally align yourself with what you envision. You, you, you see and make it true. And I figured that out pretty early on because, I mean, through trial and error, you know, I would get down on myself and I, then I'd have a crappy day and I, you know, something good would happen and I'd feel good. And then I'd say, wow, I could choose this. And then I did. It's such a Minor thing, but I did learn that happiness is a choice, not uh, a circumstance. That is not a minor thing at all. That's a major thing and requires a tremendous amount of self-awareness that not everyone gets to at that young of an age. That's pretty powerful. It also seems that you picked up on things that you needed to in order to make your life more tolerable and something to look forward to. And you figured out how to systematize that and practice it like you would a, a sport or a discipline of, of anything. Yeah, I had an uncle, who, Uncle Ralph, who um, my mother's brother, who everybody loved this guy. And he always lit up the room and he was entertaining and he, he was always reading. Everyone would always say, man, if you talk, you could talk to Ralph about anything. And I think he was a good first role model. And like, oh, I would like to be like that. And I would just pay attention, and you know, as we all do, and you kind of pick it up. Well, thanks, Uncle Ralph. We're still benefiting from Uncle Ralph through the filter of Joey Cafone. There we go. So walk me through the college years, because from what I've read, it seems like the college years for you were, were very much an exploratory expedition. Did you have expectations for the college years, or were you still just excited to learn and figure things out? Yeah, my life in general, for better and for worse, I've always focused on how can I have the most fun. And there are times professionally that that's got me to do some really great things where I'm enjoying what I do. Awesome. Uh, As a kid, when you're supposed to be learning, that's not necessarily so good. And in college, I, I ended up failing like 15 classes I would either get A plus or F. I would either show up or go play volleyball with the girls' volleyball team. Unfortunately, my grandfather, my mother's ex that I went to live with, passed away my freshman year. My step-grandmother kicked me out of the house a few months later. And and she came in and she sat on the bed and she said to me, I'll never forget it. This isn't working. And I said, okay. And she said, you have to leave. And I said, okay. Okay. 
and then I picked up some stuff and left. That was it. I was in my car for a little while, and not because I needed to be necessarily. I mean, I had friends and family. I was in shock. Like, is this where I am right now? Is it almost like, is this real? How do I tell people this? I don't have an embarrassment function, but I think that was the one time in my whole life where I probably was like, like, how did I get myself here? And even though it wasn't my fault. So eventually someone, one of my friends caught on and I stayed on the couch for a long time and I've never loved having a couch, sleeping on a couch as much as I did at that point. I was like, man, this is amazing. <laughs> and, and I picked myself up. I got a job. I worked a full day and then I would go to college in school and the rest of the time and uh, learned a ton. And again, this is like the point where often people say, hey, you know, if you could undo all that and would you go back and change it? And the answer is no. I mean, I would, of course, love to save my mother's life or my grandfather and keep everyone alive. But if that's not an option, is just to kind of undo and it's about me. No, I learned so much. You know, we talked about optimism, hard work, uh, perseverance, just like bloomed in, taught me everything. I was okay. You know, college, I did terribly in general. I, I actually did not graduate, even though I did four years, including summers, because I was trying to catch up on all the stuff I failed. College in general was such a great time. Sophomore year, I met the group of guys I mentioned earlier who were all into philosophy. And we would sit down from 11 a.m. when the cafeteria opened to 2 p.m. and talk about philosophy. So it's, it's what, four hours, three hours every day? And that changed my life. I didn't know that there were ideas and questions that didn't have answers it blew my mind and changed me oh and how wonderful also to find your your tribe your people that are similarly expanding their minds and challenging you to do the same and you're developing a kind of closeness and camaraderie through it all that must have been really therapeutic it was beautiful foundational in a major way I would show up early and I knew the, the lunch woman that, you know, I got tight with her. So she would let me in first. I would claim like five tables. I push them all together. So it'd be like <laughs> just King Arthur's long table or, you know, not a round table, long table. I would sit at the head of the table with my food, wait for everyone <laughs> to come. And then what would happen is, you know, the guys are only, there's only six of us, six or seven of us. But then all these other people start to come and we would invite, sit down, come and talk to us about this idea about, you know, what do you think is life after death? Or, you know, one of my favorites is we spent four hours, this one guy said, I am immortal, prove me wrong. And we couldn't prove him wrong. If we killed him, it, did pro it proved it to us, but not him. And it was, you know, it was a whole sort of thing. Uh, but we ended up for the three years following having like an iconic table conversation with people. It was one, it was, I would say of the things I've created in my life, that was one of the most beautiful accidental creations of that table with people. It was amazing. Wow. I love that. And that feels not only foundational to your development, but kind of emblematic of the kind of person you are. It taught me that I could do that. The trials in your life have been with caretakers evaporating. Learning that you can bring people together around you to form a, a really generative support network is probably really important. Uh, yeah, I mean, I treasured it. And 
think about it uh, and ways to recreate it. I have recreated it over the years, and I guess starting Baron Fig, the company, and you know, you get to bring people together is also a wonderful thing. So you said you never graduated from college. Clearly, it was still a really growth-oriented period for you. At some point, you needed to decide, okay, I'm not a student anymore, I'm a professional. How did you start getting your footing in the professional world? Well, I had been working. I discovered design by accident. So many people. I was doing data entry, and when I was done with my data entry, I typed fast. I would get the incredible pleasure of stamping thousands of postcards for you know back before social media was big. And I stared at this postcard so much that after hours of doing this, weeks of doing this, it became apparent that the, the card was inefficient. So I traced it, cut it out on this yellow legal pad. I'll never forget. I repositioned everything, added a few things, and I brought it to my boss. And I said, again, another formative moment. And this person, you know, did me solid. I held it up and I said, your postcard is not as good as it could be. You can sell more with this. And I'm a 19-year-old kid telling, you know, like 45-year-old boss about this. And he was like, okay, what do you need to do it? And back then, you know, Photoshop, you had to pay every year. And so he was like, I was yeah. like 600 bucks for Photoshop. And he was like, you got it. And I did it. I was right. He upgraded me. I never did data entry again. I designed all the marketing materials. And that was like where design came from for me. Whoa. Yeah. You've always been a systems thinker and an opinionated, outspoken person. You can tell that you're looking at the world and like exploding the systems that you're seeing in front of you. Definitely. Like how do the pieces come together? I finished that four years of English and philosophy. And then I didn't know what to do. I went home, drank a bunch of beers and had some Sharpies and a white wall in my bedroom. And I drew all over the wall. And then I went to sleep. The next day, friends came over, and they said, who did this? And I was like, I did? They said, this is amazing. You should go to art school. So then I went to art school. I applied to art school. I got in using a high school portfolio that I'd never used for anything. Got in as an illustrator. The teacher realized that my illustration was weak, but my design thinking was strong. And she's Lara McCormick, and she said, I think you're a designer, not an illustrator. It changed my life. And I thank her every time I can, everywhere I can, like I'm doing now, and I'm sure she's so tired of hearing it. <laughs> uh, and so then I did four years of design in, in New York City at the School of Visual Arts. That is where I figured out that if I take all these incredible ideas, the philosophy and literature ideas from you know the greatest thinkers in history, and I integrate them into something more than they originally were, if I combine all of it, I end up making things people really like that, that people haven't seen. So I ended up doing eight years of school, including summers, straight. And I, you know, I'm not that person at all. I was just like, <laughs> I needed a place to live. And if I got to school, I had a dorm. And I was able to work to pay. And it was like, it was just much more efficient to do this as a unit. Then I started my career. And I actually wanted to be a book cover designer. So I interned at Random House. And then the Kindle came out while I was there. Oh. <laughs> and these legendary book cover designers. I won't name names, but you would know them. My desk was sitting next to the copy machine in the utility room. And I loved it because people would come and chat with me all the time. So I, le I learned everything. And these legendary designers were standing, making copies, and they were worried about their jobs. 
And I'm like, if these people are worried about their jobs, I'm screwed. Like for book cover design. Oh. So I changed immediately to my second favorite thing, which was branding. And then eventually just moved to, I was at an agency for maybe a year. Then I just started doing it for myself and I had my own thing. And then I ended up starting five different endeavors with Baron Fig being the fifth. And then it stuck. This is also the lesson in adaptability playing out in, uh, in real life. It is. And how prescient of you to, if they are worried about their jobs, you were already thinking how to future-proof yourself. And branding is, a, I'm glad it was your next favorite thing, because branding is something that may change form, but will be there for as long as we can imagine. Yeah. Right. It's, it's not going anywhere. And I enjoyed it. You know, making a logo was what I really enjoyed. Like, how do you take a lot of ideas and make it into this tiny thing? It's fun. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. 
Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. Clearly, you tried four different things before Baron Figs stuck, and you probably learned a lot through those four different things. But can you tell me the origin story and the founding of Baron Fig and maybe weave some of those stories in? So back in the day when I made my way to design school, I quickly noticed that fellow students had two tools, a laptop and a notebook. The laptops were always MacBooks. The notebooks were always different brands and sizes and all sorts of shapes. And I thought, you know, why is there ubiquity in one and not in the other? And it stuck with me. Three years later, after I had tried these other things, such as uh, a flight website and drawing school online, with, and I created a partnership with these three guys, uh, myself included, me, Adam, and Scott. And it was a designer, a finance person, and a programmer. And so we committed to splitting a year evenly and serving the other per- people's needs. And so I did their two projects first and it was cool. And I learned a lot. We did a Kickstarter for them, raised money. Awesome. Designed a website. Cool. And then we got to mine. That's when I finally took the idea of like, Hey, how do I make a notebook that could be as ubiquitous as the MacBook? And what do I, and so I spent five months designing and doing all sorts of research and talking to people. Like the very first one to help them understand, I basically duct taped painting canvas onto an existing notebook. I tossed it on the table and I was like, a notebook with cloth. 
And they were like, oh. And so that story is in the book about how you can bring ideas to life very quickly and very rough to help others understand. And so I did that. And we ended up putting it on Kickstarter with the idea at the time was I'm looking at all these notebook brands that were popular in the range that I wanted to be. And they all focused on showing what artists were doing in notebooks. Like they wanted it to be beautiful. Even though most people buy notebooks and just use it for grocery lists and notes at school, they weren't speaking to what people actually did in notebooks. So I said and said, guys, we're just going to show the ugly, beautiful stuff we do in notebooks, which is diagramming, sketching, note-taking, list-making, and we're going to make our photos full of that, what people actually do. And that's what we did. Put it on Kickstarter back in the day when Kickstarter was still new. And we were asking for 15000 bucks, but we did 168 I think. So we did like 11 times the goal, and then we were off. So Baron Fig started with a notebook. Yeah. And I can see through your experience, you, you have a lot of things in place. I can see that you can design a product. I can see that you've partnered with some people who can help with finance and programming. But now you got to be an entrepreneur. How did that come for you? I remember the very first moment that I made that decision. Because really I had been chasing what's interesting and what's fun, like I mentioned. Make a notebook, awesome. And then all of a sudden, there's responsibilities now. And I remember we were like a few days from launching the website. As a designer, I did not like the website. As an entrepreneur, I needed to do everything else to prepare for the launch. And that did not include refining the design of the website. And I remember sitting there thinking, this is the moment where I have to decide who I am and what is more important. And am I going to be a designer stuck in thinking design is the most important thing in the world all the time? Or am I going to be an entrepreneur saying that the, the ecosystem and how everything fits is above that? And so I made the decision to favor the latter and I published uh, the website that wasn't pretty at all. And I remember you know, catching wind of d- designers that I knew being like, that is so stupid and so ugly. And that actually made me feel better about the decision that I'd made. I don't know why, but I felt like, huh, they hate it and I don't care, I guess. That since has stuck with me because there are things right now, the site, I don't, we've just transferred from one platform to the next and the site is not where it needs to be, in my opinion, but you got to keep going. But don't you think that is being a designer by actually being able to zoom out and prioritize all of the different inputs and and nest needs in order to optimize the outcome? Yes, as like a systems designer rather than as a graphic designer. Yeah, 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 I can see that. Yeah, I feel better about myself. I also really would like to know not only what it looks like now and how you see your role, but what are the current challenges and growing pains and how have you evolved throughout the years of Baron Fig? We've had our high points and our low points, and I definitely learned throughout the whole thing. Right now, the biggest challenge is I, I want to dramatically risk it, like risk the company, kind of risk it. I want to change. Oh, 
everything. Your soul is getting itchy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I've heard people say that's around the eight year mark. So I guess I've gone a little bit beyond that. But there's kind of writing on the wall to where I want to take the company. I want to risk it. And I want to like by January, I want to present a new Baron Fig that is somewhat dramatically different than the one now. And that's that's been exciting because it has it gets stale doing the same thing that's a tease though we'll have to stay tuned january 1st oh so that's your that's your big challenge is you're doing something kind of risky and you're you're growing the company in a very sounds like new direction how have you evolved because being an entrepreneur and the leader of a company is not just the prioritization that we talked about being a systems designer Mm -hmm. It's culture. It's it's community. It's actually re-evaluating whether what you're doing is a service or a product and what mm. the goals are and how humanity is being impacted by it. I think as a leader, I went through that whole phase, so many entrepreneurs do, where you have to let go. And mm-hmm. that was uh, difficult because design is also something I do. There's not a whole lot of designers as CEOs, you know, as opposed to like business folks. And so the design goes under someone else's purview anyway, that can do it better and letting go of design when I'm hesitant to say uh, it's part of my identity, but I suppose it is in this context uh, is tough because the design we make still represents me, but I don't necessarily do it myself anymore. And that I think as a person, Learning to trust others, learning to mentor, learning to teach. That was one of the biggest challenges that I've faced since starting. I could see that. The trust part, too. Trust comes in so many different forms and shapes. Um, And sometimes it's not even just trusting the person. You can trust the person and still see a car crash in the future, you know? And so sometimes you just have to trust that it's going to work out after it. I agree. How do you feel about when you're working with someone who is creating something that represents you? How do you interact with that? It's been clumsy over the years. I've relaxed in terms of not taking my personal value from it so seriously and instead shifted focus to thinking, well, this represents me, so it has to uphold a certain kind of standard that that I feel comfortable with. But it doesn't have to take the exact shape that I would have made it myself. So how can I make sure that that standard is upheld without like micromanaging people or clipping their wings in terms of their creativity? And I think it has to do with trust and explaining yourself. If I can go a little deeper, it means trusting that they that they want to do something as as well as they can mm-hmm. and then explaining your logic for why you make certain decisions so that they can deploy their own logic or their own way through that logic but not necessarily being really prescriptive about how it gets mm-hmm. done. Was that hard to come to or was that natural for you? It was hard to come to because it's so much of my work has also been like really face forward. Like I worked in the TV industry for, for many years where I didn't have kind of creative control over a lot of things. And 
So then when it came to things that I was did have creative control over, it was really hard for me to, to share that creative control because I felt like I needed to recoup some of what I lost in other areas. Um, the, you know, so no, it did not come easily. Um, I think I fought it the whole way. But after a while, the struggle just isn't panning out. And then you realize, I think there's a... There's another more generative way to approach this. And I and I had to do a lot of work on myself, too, in order to, to kind of see that as clearly as I feel like I see it now. But I'm still sorting through it. It is, t- it is tough. Earlier on, logically, I understood what needed to be done. But in the moment, it is difficult to say, whoa, you know, this, while this isn't the way I would do it, it doesn't make it bad. And... That's definitely a learned muscle. I feel good nowadays. I'm much more comfortable. But that, that was the biggest challenge that I had for a while. Yeah. How did you arrive to the place where you are now? I think Ariana, my wife, has been instrumental in talking me off you know, the cliff or whatever. Because um, there were times where I would keep it tight at work. I never, not, I'm not an angry boss or any of that or aggressive or anything. But I would, whenever I do face something that's uh, makes me stop, I do stop and I'll take it home and talk about it first or talk it through before I go and make any rash decisions. And uh, quickly learn, you know, she, she'll tell me like it is. And she'll be like, dude, you get out of your own way. You're, you're causing trouble. If you can't have a great designer on your team, if you don't let them do their design their way, who's going to do that? She's like, would you do that? And I'd be like, no, I'd quit. She's like, well, there you go. It's nice to have that. There's something about a party that's slightly more detached than you are that can have a neutral, more neutral zoom out picture and kind of reflect that back to you. Who also you can trust has your best interests. Um, I'm grateful for sure. So I really do want to talk about your creative process. We've already been kind of talking about, but I'd love to talk about it through the lens of your book that you've recently written and published and is coming out in October. And it's called The Laws of Creativity, Unlock Your Originality and Awaken Your Creative Genius. So what really impressed me about this book is how rational and organized it is. It And it does demystify creativity by systematizing it in a way, first of all, that makes it make sense. Second of all, that isn't prescriptive. And third of all, that illustrates it all with stories that help the brain wrap its mind around the picture that you're painting. Let's start with the impulse to write this book and to become your own publishing imprint. I mean, you seem like a very self-starter person to begin with, and I can imagine wanting to corral all of these ideas, but why a book? I said uh, at the beginning, I've designed and art directed over a hundred products, and I'm in an interesting position where I I get to be the person who is not only saying, this is what the business is going to do, but then I go follow through and do it. So I've been able to make the decisions and make the partnerships and decide almost everything. And it's put me in a unique position to see the process completely. And we've worked with incredible you know, creators like James Clear, Roxanne Gay, Netflix, so on. And whether it's what we're doing in-house or what I see these people doing, I'm, there's, it's clearly there's a pattern there. And pattern recognition is, you know, I guess it's the thing I like because 
I do call myself a systems designer. And um, I was taking notes on this for like 10 years, just on my phone, actually, uh, you know, in Apple Notes, I'd take notes, and then I'd get a new phone, and then it'd be in that phone. And it wasn't until the pandemic when we were stuck at home. I didn't plan to write this until I was older. There's two reasons that I did it. Number one is um, I'm at home and I'm talking about this book and Ariana says, dude, if you don't write this now, you're never going to write it. We are quarantined. And I'm like, (laughs) you got me. So I went and I made the table of contents, which is essentially my map, and I got started. And as I was doing it, the other thing that kind of tugged in the back of my mind is, am I too young? Is it too early to do this? Where I'm essentially saying... You know, am I, I'm a master of creativity or someone's going to challenge me and say, who the hell are you? You know, you're only 35. Then I watched uh, the Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance. Have you seen that? No. It's, it's great. It's not like I'm not, you know, a particular basketball fan, but watching it and then realizing that. Do you know how old Michael Jordan was when he won his sixth championship? No. 35. I'm 35. And I was like, you know what? You can do a whole lot by 35. And I th- and I don't think anyone would question that Michael Jordan is, you know, still n- not a master of, let's say, what he's up to. So I thought, okay, uh, I've perhaps got enough years under my belt to do this thing. So I wrote it. And uh, I really was just going to do the middle section. So the book is divided into three parts, mindset, uh, the foundation, which is how to think creative, and then the process is the actual process, and then excellence, which is what I've seen over and over in high-achieving creators. Uh, I was just going to write the middle. And what I realized after preparing it and talking to people, I interviewed about a dozen non-creatives, and what do you want to learn about creativity? I realized that the mindset section had to be included because really... They had everything that they needed to do it and have done it in the past, but their, their perspective on how creativity works was the thing that really needed addressing. And so the whole first part of the book came from that. My final part that really was the linchpin to this thing is I discovered that NASA had done a study. This blew me away. They did a study that found that 98% of kids are creative geniuses at age five. But by the time you're adults, that goes down to 2%. We're actually designing genius out of our kids. Yes. That's terrible. Right. Like the fact that it goes from 98 to two, it's not an accident. Like this is a reliable screw up in the process of, of creating humans. Oh my humans. God. That's terrifying. Right. And so then the, the book, I realized, okay, this is not, you know, people will find solace in this, even if it's a little depressing. And then it's really the book, I can say, it's not about teaching you these things. It's about reminding you what you already know, if you were a creative genius as a kid. And that's the perspective shift I could see that a 35-year-old might need. It's not that I've mastered all of this and I'm now telling you what I've learned as much as it is, I've recognized this, I've arranged it, organized it, and then now I'm reminding you of these hum- these universal truths that you just need reminding of. Right. Exactly. Yes. Well, and, and the book reads like that, too. It does not feel condescending. <laughs> it does feel very much like 
a companion as opposed to somebody dictating a kind of dogma to me. So thank you for that. That's good. Thank you. Thank you for reading. You have a way with words. I appreciate it. Each chapter is a story, you know, from someone in history. And then I go into, I break it down. And then I talk a little bit later about why we talked about all of that and some principles. And It's a interesting anecdote that we can all relate to that then you sort of break down and help us understand how that relates to the particular law that you've identified there. You've broken it down into 39 laws. And, and as we said, you know, the mindset's a really crucial part. It's like priming the pump. Then there's the process, which I think we've, we've all sort of gained some of those tools, but we're, we can be our own worst enemy in terms of deploying them if the mindset's not right. Mm. And then excellence is a, a sort of, as you said, you've recognized these kinds of patterns in excellent creators over the years. It's a way to level up. How did you know it was like done at 39? Yeah. <laughs> like, Everybody's like, dude, why didn't you get one more? 40, like even number. What's wrong with you? Uh, but I, 39 feels really intentional <laughs> and 40 feels like it would have been more arbitrary because right. you were just trying to hit 40. Right. It feels like BS if it were 40. Uh, yeah. uh, it was actually 37. And then um, in editing, I always thought in editing, I thought it shrunk by 10%. Uh, so I wrote a lot thinking, okay, there's a lot to work with. We can shrink it. And my editors loved what was there and had me add two chapters, which I was shocked. So it went to 39. But the answer is Newton did not create the law of gravity. He observed it and he wrote it down. So I did not create the 39 laws. I observed it and it's 39 and it's just as odd (laughs) to you as it is to me. (laughs) Okay. So when your editors told you to find two more chapters, how did you find two more laws? Or did was it a matter of like sort of extracting some from other laws and making them their own? The beautiful thing, they're they're all writers and so familiar with the craft, you know, creativity and the whole process anyway. So they were pretty clear that you, you know, Joey, you have talked about fear and you mentioned failure. Failure is enough to be its own chapter and and of course, in retrospect, yes, uh, absolutely. So that was one, and I forget what the other one was, but they ended up evolving pretty obviously when they had said them. So that's actually a great segue, because I wanted to ask you about fear and failure. That's, that's a big one. That's a big one that gets in the way for a lot of people. And you say right off the bat that failure is directly proportional to success. Yeah. So that right away, my mind does the calculation. It's like, if I want success, I have to be willing to go through failure. What is your philosophy on that? It says failure and success are directly proportionate. The more you fail, the more likely you are to succeed. And it's the idea that, you know, every failure is not actually a failure, just a lesson. I think failure has also become a platitude. Like, don't be afraid to fail. And it seems obvious that, yeah, of course, you have to try a lot. Not all those tries are going to be, you know, home runs. But the way that you break it down is less about like the statistical odds of reaching success after failure. It's more about approaching failure as something not to beat yourself up about, but to actually mine for its opportunity. Because it's every failure is a lesson. 
you take something from that failure that makes the next try infinitely more likely to succeed. And therefore, it's not something to fear as much as it is something to embrace. Right. To leverage it. If you can, quote unquote, endure failure, you're at a significant advantage to people who cannot just because it doesn't stop you. It's almost like you're saying endure isn't even the right word because we set ourselves up to think it's worse than it is. And that makes it something that we fear more than we should. Right. I mean, human beings are at times the most logical and then other times the most illogical. For example, and I say this in the chapter, we when we try something new, so many people get upset that they don't get it right on the first try. It's and that's an absurd reaction. And logically, I bet those same people would say, yeah, it's ridiculous if they stopped and thought about it. But not getting it right on the first try, the fear of that is what stops so many people from trying almost everything. And that is what I'm speaking to in this chapter is you're going to fail on your first try. It is ridiculous to think that you would not. I did not wake up and be a designer. I created crap for years. (laughs) And then maybe it was slightly less crappy. And eventually it came out as something... Uh, that I could be proud of. And I still look back, and I'm sure you and anyone who creates can say the same thing. If you look back at something you made, you know, like two or three years ago, you can see so much of what you could do better already. And Mm. it's just, you're constantly getting better. And that's also something you need to accept as well. The whole journey of failure and improvement is intertwined in that. Yeah, and I'm also thinking about, you have a chapter or a law on self-worth. Mm. And I, th- I think it uh, has to do with competition. Measure against yourself the law of competition. Can you unpack that a little bit? Because I think that is a, a nice one to build on top of this idea of working, enduring failure and working through it. Comparison is, the, is, is poison to so much of modern life. And with social media, it's so easy to compare. The law is essentially don't compare yourself to others, but compare today's you to yesterday's and focus on that. Can I be just a little bit better than I was? Strive to be incrementally better and you'll reach heights. So I tell the story, uh, this is a, a favorite, but in the chapter, a student misses the beginning of class. His name is George mm-hmm. Danzig. He goes and he sees a couple Um, problems on the board he writes them down then he splits before class ends so the teacher doesn't yell at him and he go home goes home and these are like the hardest problems he's ever gotten from class but he solves them drops them off at the teacher's office a week later there's a banging on his door on the weekend and lo and behold the teacher's like sweating and and panting from running across campus waving his homework because (laughs) george danzig solved problems that were like not solvable so people thought. And the, they were on the board because the teacher was explaining that some problems are too difficult or too challenging to solve. So George, not knowing, not comparing himself to others and the expectations given to him, was the only student, of course, in the class to even try, let alone solve it. And then we break down into just kind of how important it is to measure against yourself and where you can go. So eventually, 
if you compare yourself to others, it can be useful, but you're experiencing these predefined paths. Whereas if you just focus on yourself, you wander into your own lane. And then that lane can create new and interesting and original things that you would not let yourself go if you were constantly saying, well, what are they doing? What are they doing? I like that. That's freeing. And it's also a powerful reminder that if self-worth is created through measuring against yourself, then it's also sabotaged by comparison. It's almost impossible to be a better version of you while looking to examples of other people. Yeah. You know, this applies in all areas of life. It's, uh, expectations, essentially, is what this chapter is about. Expectations for yourself and the expectations you think people have of you. It's about managing that. Do you feel like in some ways your your childhood presented you with a, a path that was maybe had less expectations placed on you than, than a typical nuclear family with bio parents? Yeah, I do. I think... I got to be a wild child and no one stopped me. Even my mom during that period, I, I guess she picked and chose her battles. You know, I was not forced to be an incredible student. It was not like, let me see your homework. What did you get? She, she would get the report card and she'd look at it and say, you know what, why do you have a C in this? And I'd say something. She'd be like, okay. I was never asked to be something she wanted. Not, and I'm not even saying that's the right approach because... You know what? On the verge of, you know, if I have kids, let's say, can I do that? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I'm a pretty opinionated dude. I'm going to be like, what <laughs> the hell is this F? Yeah. No, I just think it's an interesting comparison or example that we have. Because I know that even though, you know, my parents were incredibly supportive, it's impossible to escape their own filters of, of life. And those kind of seep into your DNA and set a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy in, in some ways, you know, um, not just parents, but you, the whole environment that you're brought up in. And so sometimes like the challenge is just becoming aware of that and then making the choice to supersede an expectation that you may not have even realized was something you've internalized and are now placing on yourself. Right. These inherited expectations and beliefs about the world just get passed on. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So that story was really powerful to me because it also illustrated how the other students didn't try to solve the problem because they were told it was impossible. So they just didn't even give it a go. But due to ignorance, Danzig, like thought it was homework, took it home, assumed he was supposed to be able to solve it, right? And he was going to be checked against it. And so worked on it until he figured it out. There's something about connecting to the present moment that you talk about in terms of its power, its potential. And I wonder if you can elaborate on that. The hard part about talking about this book is that it's not the book where I'm proposing a thesis statement and then I, the first two chapters are really the whole idea and then you just illustrate it. It's like 39 individual essays almost. So as far as the present goes, there's a stereotype of creatives. There's a stereotype of non-creatives. Creatives, uh, you know, the starving artist smoking weed and chilling. I purposefully do not have creative background here in my house that's like, look at my doodles and look at all this silly, like, look how creative I am. I'm so, oh my gosh. And then the other half is the non-creatives, which are rigid and, you know, the suits. Right. But the real economic disparity between the suits and the starving artists is a big ass problem, yes. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. That's, that's the thing that I really want to look at at some point in my life deeply is where we have the people who create the thing then the other people profit the most off of that. Joey, this is a problem that we need you to solve. It, makes, it pisses yeah. me off. Like it, it, I'm not an angry dude, but that pisses me off big time. It pisses me off too. And I think a lot of it starts with that expectation that we set up for society that creativity is not a lucrative endeavor or that creatives are not structured and organized enough to actually become an entrepreneur that's successful, or that creativity is not the most important part of running a business, when actually it is. You are creating something. It's what a business does. It's what allows you to envision a future. It's what allows you to roadmap that, and it's what allows you to stay adaptable. So I will join this team, Joey, if cool. you'll invite me. Yeah. And we will... Well, let's fight it. I don't okay, know how, but it. I re it really bugs me. And, you know, when we talk about expectations and we talked about that story of George Danzig, you've got essentially creatives out there who make things are being told, or the example in the world is, well, you work for someone who then makes all the money off the thing you make, and we've normalized it. And it's accepted because, like, the students in the class who are told, this is an unsolvable problem. Okay, this is how you don't get paid... You know, you get paid a salary, but then this person gets paid all the rest. That's bullshit. Uh, Utter bullshit. Right. And like venture capitalists, which, you know, one in 12 six, uh, startups succeed to what they want, right? So essentially, 
they get to have 10 or 20% chance of success, but then you have a, a, like a 1 in 12% chance of success. I'm terrible at math. You can obviously tell. But like, but I but I see the point. You yeah. know what I'm saying is, I have to be. I am just basically a dice roll, like one of twelve sides where they roll the dice, so they're going to win because they have all these options and they've made nothing. It's like the house odds in Vegas. It's I don't know how to solve the problem. So much of it starts with changing expectations, but I also think part of the problem comes from needing to reprioritize in-house creativity. I think so many times businesses actually start to suffer when they rely on metrics and formulas. They become stagnant and they can't adapt to a future and they also can't tap into a zeitgeist when they're actually designing the creativity out of a business. If you go by data, all you're doing is looking at the past. And so you can't come into anything new because it's only analyzing what's already been done. And so then you're just regurgitating that in some... And Netflix is a great example of, I don't know about you, but Netflix has shit the bed to me. And recently it's gone downhill. There's not nearly as, I'm not nearly as excited for what's come out and they cancel a lot of things that people like, and it's all about the data and they don't, uh, I can understand as a business, but it's everyone I'm talking to is less and less excited about Netflix, anything. And yet they're following the data and this is what you get. It may in in the moment or in like the immediate future, the short term, you may get really good results from following your data. Sure, but at some point you have to say, what are we going to do that we haven't done that we don't know if it's going to work at all? Because there's no data on it. Yes, and this is kind of akin to your law that states that designing for everyone is actually designing for no one. Yes. Make for yourself and you'll appeal to many. Make for many and you'll appeal to none. Yes. The law of specificity. Yes. Specificity. This is something I use in the entertainment world, but specificity kills cliche. So if you tell a story that's deeply human, that's deeply real with real specifics, you'll resonate so much more than if you tell a sort of generic universal story without any texture, grit, or actual detail. Right. And I agree yeah. completely. And so that's a little bit the same as just taking this data and then just, you know, using it to sort of ramp up, maximize the, the obvious. It's like not even interpreting the numbers with any nuance. If you don't go into the unknown, you can't create something new. Right. And so following the data is, you know, de facto following the known. So to me, it's, it's an inevitability when you start to see when Netflix starts to talk about the data like that and where they're going, it's, it seems pretty obvious that, Oh, your viewership is sinking. Now you have to, you know, they're raising the price. They're getting rid of sharing. I, I don't know if you're familiar. They're like, no longer can I have, you know, my Netflix account, my buddy across town has logs in and we have our profile. They're getting rid of that. But to me, that's actually another negative short sight because now what's going to happen is, well, if, if I'm not keeping my account for Chris and it's only for me, I'm going to start to unsubscribe when there's nothing. Whereas the only reason I stay subscribed now is because I don't want to pull it off Chris's TV. Yeah. Well, not only that, but that means you and Chris are talking about something that's on Netflix. So it's an actual pathway to conversation, to cultural zeitgeist, to being in the, the popular discourse. Right. But when you start to chop up the path in all of those ways, it's, it's harder to make that happen. 
Yeah, but we started this talking about the present moment. And actually, maybe that was kind of a meta example, because instead of sort of sticking to the program and illustrating a chapter in the book, you and I went off in the present Mm -hmm. moment talking about stuff. Allow it to happen. I think there's something really difficult about being present. And it's getting more and more difficult with, you know, the level of distraction being pulled, our attention being such a commodity that it's being pulled in so many different directions. The other thing that I want to talk about is how do you tap into the present? How do you figure out how to not be distracted and also not focus on the past or the future? I talk about the present and the non-present as essentially looking down and looking forward. This is what got us on that thing about the two stereotypes, right? The suits are always looking forward and the creators are always looking down. And the problem is the suits can't look and see what's right in front of them. And the creatives can't plan well enough to get anything done without the help of others. That's all BS. But it is true that exclusive of what you actually do in life, there are people who have a tendency to look forward very well or look down very well. And it's hard to balance that quite often. You know, there, I know people who are incredible planners looking forward, but then when it comes to sit down and do something, it's much more difficult and vice versa. So for me, I realized that pretty early on when I heard the word getting into the flow, right? Your flow state. And I was like, what is that? How do I maximize that? This is a wonderful place to be. I wish I had a better suggestion other than to become aware of it and meditate and, and push yourself to do it. But it really is about sitting down and just telling yourself, this is what I do. I sit down and I'm like, okay, the next X number of minutes, 30 minutes, 90 minutes, whatever I'm working on, I'm going to let the world fade away. And by saying it to myself and accepting it, it happens very easily. So I I enter flow all the time, like uh, on demand, because uh, over the years I've been able to consciously decide it. Does that mean that you block out time? For yes. yourself? So this okay. is it. It's, it's the looking forward and then looking down. When you look forward it's easy, and you plan well, it makes it easier to look down. And when you're really good at looking down, you can appreciate looking forward, I think, if, you're, if you turn yourself towards that. I block out my working hours from like, you know, seven to seven or something. And every minute has an assignment or like, what am I doing? Even lunch is, you know, it's, it's all I've, I've planned. And then I'm free. I do that first thing in the morning. I I literally drag the thing on my calendar. I don't know if this is obvious, you know, and I look at my task list and it goes to my calendar. And then, okay, cool. Now I forget about what I'm doing. And I just work until this says, oh, you're doing the next thing. And that's how I do it. That is what I've struggled with my whole life. I wish that I could do it that way because I think it would free me up a lot. I feel like I'm extra sensitive to my environment. And so I may have a task blocked out for a certain time in the day and I don't feel like doing it. And then (laughs) I don't. And then the whole schedule goes out the window. Can you help me with that? Can you fix it for me? (laughs) That's like there is a chapter on discipline, and you know I do talk about it. I I, I hear you. I mean, I'm I'm disciplined. I'm an incredibly hard worker. I just can't make it conform to a schedule, like exactly right. So anyway, that's that's my issues. I'm working on it. 
Maybe the the blocks can be moved around if that helps. Yeah, they can okay. be swapped. I don't know. Sometimes I'm like, I'm not doing that now, and I'll kick it to later, and then I grab that thing and move it up. So maybe if you have to achieve the seven things in this time, the sequence maybe could can be change. adjusted. Yes, that's also very helpful. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I've noticed throughout this conversation that you've had some pretty important figures in your life, and not just your your co-founders. But your mom, mm. Ariana, the illustrator teacher who convinced you you're a designer, and your uncle Ralph. Mm. I wonder if there's any pattern recognition that you've seen amongst all of these really pivotal people in your life. It's kind of like a hobby, right? Pattern recognition. I love to see how things work in terms of those people and my grandpa Lou, who taught me a lot about hard work. He was a plumber and I worked with him for several summers doing plumbing. And is there a thread? I think the thread is in me and not them. It's paying attention to what's in front of me. We already have so many people in our lives that do this and how often do we listen or reach out or take the time to watch what they're doing? When people ask me, like, you know, what is your secret to success? Like, well, I, first of all, I still have, like, a good 20 years to fuck it up. So don't give me that title just yet. But so far, I am, I think, learning from other people's lessons has been one of my biggest traits, abilities. A lot of people need to do it themselves. They need to, no matter what they hear, even if they heard it, the advice, they'll do it, and then they'll say, oh, they were right. And so the pattern to me is I've learned that I don't, I can save a whole lot of time and energy and even pain if I learn from other people's lessons. And these people, for whatever reason in my life, have been able to impart those lessons, probably because I sit there and listen. And when someone's listening, you know, the other person keeps talking, usually. Perhaps that's the pattern. You've had some big challenges in your life that were kind of not anything you created yourself, but were delivered to you. And then you've also created some big challenges for yourself. You set big goals. And I'm just wondering, are there times when you also almost, it's too big, when it's too big, too daunting, is there another kind of support system like spirituality or faith or something or higher power that you have at, or therapy, even a, a trained professional. I definitely did the therapy thing over the years for sure. You know, when my mom passed away, they sent me to the nun. She And uh, she did not like what I said about, you know, I'm, I, I was raised with a belief in God, but I did not keep that belief in God. And I'm not anti or, uh, atheist per se, I believe in a spirituality and a connectedness with humans. Um, but she did not appreciate, you know, what I was saying at the time. And thankfully, no one forced me to do anything I didn't want to do. And over the years, there's been more. You know, we mentioned gratitude and optimism and perspective have really been my weapons uh, against stress. I'm not. I'm generally not a stressed stressed out person. I'm not angry. But I went through all that. I remember as a kid, I was, you know, an angry teenager, and I would yell, and I would get 
uh, in trouble, and I realized, well, that's stupid. I shouldn't do that. Uh, I guess just paying attention is serving me a lot. So I don't have a certain belief system other than, like, the belief system I've put together from experience. Like, once every couple years, there's something that's devastating. And I would say, like, for a day, I'm devastated. And Ariana has been able to sit down and remind me of what I've, who I am or what I've done or how I should approach this, just like anything else, and pick me up. And that has been the, you know, when shit hits the fan, that's who helps out. That's the beauty of the connectedness that you value and have gratitude for. Yeah, she's, she's a champ. But it's not just that. I don't think she could be a champ if you weren't, A, reciprocating, I'm sure, in some way, um, but also letting that dynamic actually grow to its fullest potential and allowing yourself to be moved by, by her in such a way that you're not clinging to your devastation as a, to make a point or to, no. in some way, oppose her. That's symphonic. Yeah. 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 It takes, like we said, it takes two. And uh, I'm glad I have her. And, you know, I'm thankful that for, I don't necessarily believe in free will, which is a whole conversation. You know, that for, is, oh my gosh, we have to do <laughs> another episode. <laughs> so I do feel lucky, though, is why I'm saying that is I feel lucky that the tendencies that I have, I don't feel responsible. I'm just like grateful that I happen to see the world in a certain way on a certain day. That gave me an idea of something that has luckily bloomed into a positive thing. Thank God. So, what? oh my God, you just cracked open a whole <laughs> can of worms. Because if you don't believe in free will, then what is creativity? So, all right. There's order and chaos, right? We know what order is. You can. It's a pattern you can see. Chaos is not randomness. Chaos is just the pattern you can't see. Because there's no such thing as random in the universe. So it's all about trusting the process, trusting there. If you do the creative process and you put the right pieces together, the pattern that you can't see and and possibly no one else can see could unfold if you keep going. Ah, there we go. (laughs) Okay. You can still not have free will and deliberately exercise a sort of participation with the patterns. Right. Because who we are as people is, you said it earlier, is a result of parents and parents and parents and society. And so, like, you know, I'll say to someone, why did you do this decision? And they say, well, because I think this and this. And I'll say, well, where did you think that? And eventually, if you follow that train of thought, it's through, it comes from an experience outside of yourself that you didn't choose. And so... You're actually the whole foundation of who you are. Yes, you're making decisions, but that's the facade of free will. You're actually enacting the pattern. And this, is, this is like a whole oh, thing. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I know, I know. <laughs> Ariana's always like, don't bring up free will. Don't bring up free will. But sometimes I <laughs> no, can't. No, I'm so that. glad you did. This is fascinating. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's my, that's my two minute okay. philosophy lesson. Okay, so then here's my final 
question for you. And if you can zoom as far out as you possibly can on your life or potentially on lives, if you believe that your incarnations happen over and over oh, I again. I like that. What is the big pattern? Like, what are you creating in the biggest, biggest picture you can sure. imagine? I, for me, I think I was a dog in a previous life. I, I eat like an animal. Like I, I, when, I, when food is in front of me, I go nuts. And it's solidified. Apparently, I shake my butt when I'm excited, according to Ariana. <laughs> and uh, the day that I said, oh, I could play Frisbee for hours, it's always the other person that stops. She was like, it's, it, oh, you're a dog. Uh, but in this life, in this life, I think the injustice of creativity and creatives is what I want to take a look at. You know, both of us clearly have strong feelings. When I was younger, there was a kid, let's call him Bill. And he was an incredible artist. He drew, like, at, at a 20-year-old level at seven. And his parents forced him to be an accountant. That didn't work out. Forced him to be a nurse. And that's those were their jobs. He's not happy now. And I remember witnessing this and trying to defend him. There was no trust that he could make money doing this thing that he was incredible at and loved. And now, as a professional, I... I I see illustrators making $2,000 a drawing, doing three, four of them a week, making wonderful living, joyous life, full of expression. So for me, can you hear the sirens? Yes. They're coming for me. For me, <laughs> it's the anti-creativity police. It's all about how can I just... Do, you know, through, I used to think it was through being an artist. I actually think it's through being a business. Do what Nike did for the body that Baron Fig, could Baron Fig do it for the mind? Where pre-Nike, going out and running was like, what are you doing? Are you running away from something? Running became uh, an activity of leisure and of, of uh, wellness because businesses propped them up. And of course, there's gain in the business. There's not a, this is not a public service. But how do we mutually benefit is, and do that for creatives, do that for the mind. So in doing that, you're creating tools for thinkers as a contribution to a greater goal of creative justice. Right. Like Nike creates, you know, tools and an ethos and a culture of athleticism. How do we create a culture of thinkers? I haven't gotten it right. And we talked about there's dramatic changes I want to make. I will risk this company until I either blow it up or till I solve the problem. And I'm fine with either. The only thing I'm not fine with is not doing, like not trying. All right. Well, that's a good place to be and a place for us to stay tuned. Very exciting. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Joey, for sharing so much of your, your story and your philosophy and your specificity for engaging me in the present moment. <laughs> Thank you so much. Amy, there's every once in a while, I hop on the mic with someone doing an interview or a chat. And at the end, I'm really sad because that's the end of it. You've clearly touched on a couple times, like how important people are to me. Just you're awesome. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, and it's been a pleasure. You made me think about more things that I haven't thought about in certain ways that now I've got work to do. 
Hey, thanks for listening. For a transcript of this episode and more about Joey Cafone, including images of his work and a bonus Q&A, head to cleverpodcast.com. If you can think of three people who would be inspired by Clever, please tell them. It really helps us out when you share Clever with your friends. You can listen to Clever on any of the podcast apps. Please do hit the follow or subscribe button so our new episodes will turn up in your feed. We love to hear from you on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Please stay tuned for upcoming announcements and bonus content. You can subscribe to our newsletter at cleverpodcast.com to make sure you don't miss anything. Clever is hosted and produced by me, Amy Devers, with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Ilana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011.